You are listening to Pastor Dennis Helton of Grace Community Church in Jefferson City, Missouri. Please join us as we study the scriptures one verse at a time, finding therein the power of God and the wisdom which leads to salvation. And without further ado, here's Pastor Dennis Helton. that you guys are being edified as we uh, do our study through it. Of course, this uh, scripture was meant for 2,000 years ago to the Corinthians, and it is meant for us today, all this time later. And it's, it's just as relevant as it was then, if people go for relevancy, but uh, that's not the, the ultimate. Just something has to be relevant. But the scripture is always relevant to uh, us today through time and culture. It cuts through key theme uh, that we have been uh, looking at in this particular chapter, in chapter 4, is actually in verse 6, and it is a, a major theme. It's about the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's the gospel. And of course, that is Christ, that's God himself. Now, contrasting that is the jars of clay, and that's what we dealt with in verse 7. From verse 6 to verse 7, you have quite the contrast. And the jars of clay hold this most precious treasure that we have. Throughout all the universe, this greatest treasure is this gospel, and it's held in jars of clay. Precious treasure. It's a glorious gospel. So the power of God is put on display. That's the idea. He would take weak vessels, earthenware vessels, and have his gospel being put in to these vessels, if you may, if we can put it in that kind of a word picture. Because the jars of clay, the earthenware, really are of no special value of themselves. In and of themselves, they're really worthless but they are to contain this most precious treasure. Earthenware can be humble tools, and they're to be used. Uh, these tools, or people for that matter, can be afflicted. They can be crushed. It can be broken. And in those containers, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ, that great glory is not destroyed. We can be struck down, as Paul said, but not destroyed. The life of Jesus is manifested in these bodies. That's how Christ is seen. It's through people who know Him, who He resides in. So Paul is very confident as he um, goes through this particular epistle. He's confident in all of his ministry, isn't he? I mean, he has had horrible trials. None of us have even come close to the kind of trials that he's been involved with as we peer through Corinthians, for that matter. The afflictions and uh, the persecutions. And it was taken all the way to the point of almost death. As far as Paul was concerned, he was a dead man. And, of course, he died daily, as, as he said. But 
He affirms, and of course it's found in our section today, that the faith that he had meant that he had victory over every kind of trial that he encountered. And you see that through the epistles, don't you? He has victory all the way through. Here's a man who gave his life up daily for people to hear the gospel. He gave his life up for the Corinthians of all people. I think our country could be a nation of, that would be like that city of Corinth, that Corinthianized were like that morally today, but yet he went there with the gospel and people were converted from such terrible, horrible sins that they were involved with. So the proof of his validity of being the apostle that came to Corinth and gave him the gospel was it was proven, it was validated by his dying and the life that was in the people. We're talking about people who were born again. New life was instilled. And so the church was going strong there. The only thing is there were false teachers and they were lying about Paul and saying he wasn't an apostle. And they were saying because of all his persecutions and everything that went wrong, he surely can't be from God because things aren't going right for him. So therefore, he must not really be an apostle. <laughs> you think of all the times that he was almost killed, persecuted, stoned almost to death, or he was. But people were living because of his daily dying. Philip Hughes writes this in his commentary. It's the uncomparable life of the risen Jesus within that enables his servants willingly and perpetually to be handed over to death for his sake in order that the same life of Christ may be kindled in the hearts of others, enabling them in turn to win others. This is the chain of faith unbroken through the ages. That's right. Down through the church age, you can see how people gave up their lives, literally, physically even, so that people would be able to get the gospel. They would be persecuted and even come to their deaths. But at the same time, the gospel has marched right on through. It still lives. It always will, won't it? So God takes the weak. He takes the despised, the persecuted, the people that seem like nothing, the nobodies, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, there are not many mighty, there are not many noble, there are not many wise, the base, the common people of the world. And he takes and uses those as jars of clay to instill his gospel, the most precious treasure that you could find here on this planet. And he makes them powerful because of the power that he is. That's what's amazing. Weak things that become powerful. So in the dying that Paul talked about, it was an ongoing daily dying as he gave himself up. He became an agent of life. And then generations who trusted in that gospel that he gave became agents of life as they too, in turn, died daily and died even physically. So that they would live so that people would also live to die, 
that others may live to die as they passed it on, so that others may live, so that they would die as they passed it on, that others would. You get the pattern? Thousands of years that's gone on. Paul says, hey, if I'm preaching the truth, if I'm preaching the truth, I may be persecuted. So what if I'm persecuted? If I get the truth out? If in preaching the truth I'm killed, so let it be that I'm killed. It's not an issue to Paul. I'm not kidding you. It's not an issue. If he dies, he goes to be with the Lord, the people get the gospel, and they keep it going. And that's what's happened. That's why the church still exists. It goes on. Nothing can come against it, kill it off. It just keeps on going, doesn't it? The truth. The truth had to go to the ones that God had elected. There were people who were elected who were not saved yet. And today, so it goes, there are people who are elect. They're not saved. We don't know who they are. We just go out and give the gospel to them. So he preached the truth no matter what the cost. He knew what the cost was. He uh, experienced it. His final reward was so much beyond that cost. It's worth it all, isn't it? The reward is much worth it all compared to what we think as we pay the cost. So anyway, let's turn to that text today in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. And if I, I may, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of this section as we honor the Lord and trying to understand what this means. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us along with Jesus and will print us, present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this section of precious truth. Speak to us now. Open our eyes. Open our ears spiritually so that we can understand what you have for us as your Holy Spirit will bring out the truths of your scripture and make an impact on each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. There's nothing to fear in life. There's nothing to fear in death. Did you see the example of what Paul has been doing? And, and he continues to talk about that. There is nothing to fear. The only fear that we should have is the fear of God. That proper reverential relationship that we have with Him as we see His Word, fearing Him. Um, starts off here in verse 13, and we have some people this morning, some uh, precious guests that have come, and uh, thank you guys for popping in. And uh, you're always welcome here. What we do is we just take a section of the scripture and kind of go through uh, each word as much as possible or phrase and try to explain it. That's uh, what expository preaching is. It's so that we can understand um, 
So this is God's word. He, he spoke. He has spoken. He still speaks. He speaks right now as he speaks by using the power of God's word. His spirit who resides in us then teaches us. He is our resident teacher, isn't he? The Holy Spirit. So he starts off with this, this phrase, but having the same spirit of faith. The same spirit of faith. Um, this idea of the spirit here, uh, it could mean, since the word is pneuma there, it could mean the Holy Spirit, but it also could take the meaning of attitude. It's the, the attitude of faith. The same kind of subjective faith. The attitude of faith of who he's talking about here is the one who wrote something. According to what is written, I believe there I spoke. So he's quoting out of the Psalms, he's quoting David, really, is who he is comparing his situation to, to David, back in the Psalms. He had an attitude. It was a good attitude that David had, and Paul picks on uh, up on that. It comes out of uh, Psalms, and we'll be going to that in a moment. It's actually, the way that it's going to read, it's going to read a little differently maybe than your text, because it's, it comes out of, I'll get a little technical here, the Septuagint, and so therefore it reads a little bit different. It reads kind of like what Paul is using here, but it's called the 70, the, the Septuagint. It's the Old Testament that was written in Greek. It was originally written in Hebrew, but what did most of the world speak back at the time of Paul? Most of them spoke in Greek, and that's why the New Testament, as you see, the epistles were originally written in Greek because that was a common language. Much like today, uh, much of the common language is a lot of people will learn English even though not, they're not from um, this land. They will have second, third languages and such, but English is really key. Well, Greek was at that time. That's why I mentioned that. That's why it's going to read to Paul as he quotes here. You might have it in um, capital letters in your version possibly. It says, I believed, therefore I spoke. And that's what we'll be uh, kind of honing in on. The, the psalmist there, that, that's David, He's recounting the faith that he, that he had that gave him courage to be able to speak despite all the opposition, the affliction that was coming his way. He was greatly afflicted, and because of his great affliction, he had faith. His faith made him outspoken. So he says, I believed, I have faith, Therefore, I spoke. He couldn't help but speak. He spoke to the Lord in that psalm as he was going through something that was almost death. And, and we'll see that in a moment. That's kind of interesting. You know, when you first read that, and I had the privilege all this week to try to get what that meant. My, start going on the Internet I can read more commentaries than I ever read before. And you begin to wonder, which one can I go for? There's so many here that I don't have the time to look at all of these guys. What is this? What does this mean? You know, I, having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. Well, it comes right off of the last section that we read where he said that I have uh, manifested the life of Jesus in my body. I am dying. I'm dying daily. I've almost come to the point of death time after time and he is comparing himself 
with David. You remember that so often his enemies were after him. He was chased. He would hide out in caves, maybe holes in the ground, wherever he could hide out. I mean, that's a, that's a very humbling situation, isn't it? He was persecuted. Of course, it was King Saul who was coming after him. Anyway, David felt crushed. He felt perplexed. He felt disillusioned. Has Paul felt that way? Yeah, if you back up, we looked at this last week. Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now, that's what Paul has written. He says, we want to get the good news to the people that need to hear it. He was willing to do that. You can say, well, somebody who's in Christ, everything should go right, you know, perfectly. should have a perfect life. And people, therefore, because of that, you have a powerful gospel. People will come to Christ now because everything goes good with you. And you can look at Jesus or you can look at the Old Testament saints. You can look at Paul. You can look at all the rest of the apostles. What happened to those guys? They're all persecuted. I think everybody but John died because of persecution. At any rate, when you look at Fox's Book of Martyrs, you can see all the way up through church history. And that's the way it goes for the church. You can say, well, why was Paul so confident when all these things happened to him? And everybody's going around, see, he can't be an apostle. Well, he says this in this verse 13. Having the same spirit of faith according to what is written and what was written was this I believed therefore I spoke that is what Paul is using here I believe therefore I speak Paul says he believes what has been written in a document it's found in the scriptures he believes what he found in the scriptures something that had been written down he said what's so important about the word of God well, it's because it's written. It's something that we can read, understand. You can hold it in your hands and read it right here, knowing that this, and you can trust this, that this is God speaking. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? We can do that. We do do it. We hunger for it. So what was written? Well, we see that right there, what he, he uh, did. And he believed... Because he believed, he spoke. Now, Paul says, I have the same belief that the guy who wrote this down, I have the same belief that he does. I have faith the way that he... I have the same attitude of faith. Do you get that idea now? The attitude is to keep on plowing through. And we'll see that in Psalm 116 here in a moment. Paul is identifying himself with David. David is at death's doors. David is at a point where he thinks that he could die. But David couldn't keep silent in his afflictions. Can Paul keep silent in his afflictions? He proclaims the goodness of God in the midst of the terrible experiences that life has to offer for us. <laughs> Turn to Psalm 116. And this is where David is shown in a 
horrible affliction. Paul picks up on this. Paul was very familiar with Scripture. And how often do we see where Paul quotes right out of the Old Testament? At that time, that was the, the Bible. And it was to be coming more and more complete as it went on, as the epistles were passed around. And that was Bible too. But he, you, can, you can see that, that Paul really counted on those holy scriptures to get him through life. And here was a situation. I want you to think about it. Make it real. Paul thought many times that he was going to die physically, that he was out of here. And here's what he draws from. Let's first pick up the quote that he has, and then let's, let's validify that. Verse 10. I believed when I said. Now, Paul said it in the way was, uh, I believed, therefore I spoke. When you first read, they go, what? I believed when I said. Now, yours might read something like that. Or did it read exactly the way it did in, in Corinthians? Did it? Oh, good. That makes it easier to explain. I believe when I said, I am greatly afflicted. Now, just not afflicted, but greatly afflicted. Well, let's pick up on that and see what he's saying. We just jump into a passage and you read that and you say, oh, boom, that applies to my life, you know. Could, but the problem is, is what's the rest of the scripture that's around it that is God is speaking as he's saying this? It all makes sense. It flows together. So let's back up, take the first verse. I love the Lord, David says here, because he hears my voice and my supplications. Boy, does he really need God to hear him now. Because he has inclined his ear to me. Why? Because David's a believer. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. And here you go. I want you to get a very graphic picture as we read verse 3. The cords of death encompassed me. Just don't read that over that lightly. David is at a point where he is he's ready to die. That looks like that's all that's going to happen here. And the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow this is David, one who wrote all those psalms, the joyful songs that he wrote. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, I beseech you, save my life. Have you ever been there? Well, he's talking physically. Have you ever been at a point in a life where mental, physical, spiritual economically, whatever situation it may be, you felt like there's nothing left. Call upon the Lord. I beseech you, save me. And look at this. Look what he says. He knows the promises of God. He knows the very person of God. Gracious is the Lord. God is filled with grace, isn't he? And righteous. He's full of grace. He's full of righteousness. It's full of truth. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low, and he saved me. 
Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have rescued my soul from death. My eyes from tears. My feet from stumbling. This is real. This is a real believer. And look what he went through. This is truth. He knew what God had done before and he knows that God is compassionate. He's merciful. He is gracious. He's righteous. Right? And so that's what you do. You, you count on him. He says, I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Even if he does die, he's still going to be living. Right? But here, you know, he's saying, I'll walk before the Lord. I believed when I said, I am greatly afflicted. I believe in, I'm trusting in God. Even when I was afflicted. Now is that starting to make sense? Does that make sense as we tie it into our 2 Corinthians passage? You can see why he quoted from this. I believed, then I spoke. You know what he spoke? Keep reading. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. We don't know what kind. Nobody knows what David was going through at this time. But you know what? There sure were a lot of people that hated David. You know what people do when they hate you? They lie about you. Was that happening? Yeah. Do you think Paul was relating to this? He, whenever he read this, it was like, oh, that's it. And the Holy Spirit inspired him. Boom. He pops it on there. And now it, it ties in with what he was going through. People were trying to oust him from his apostleship. From out of Corinth, even the people in the church now had turned on him, many of them. But here's what David did. He said, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Even at this time of death, he's saying, this is precious. Even if I die, it's as precious to God. My life is, he says. O Lord, surely I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your handmaid. You have loosed my bonds. To you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. This is while he's at a point he thinks he's going to die. I will offer you a sacrifice of thanksgiving. I'll call upon your name. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Amen. He speaks. I believe, therefore I speak. He spoke to the Lord, and you know what he did? He just kept praising him. He praised him. He's in an affliction. And he praises the Lord, and he praises the Lord, and he praises the Lord. He spoke. He believed God, then he spoke. Does that make sense? Let's go back. David almost felt crushed, almost felt despaired, almost felt disillusioned. Paul felt that, identifies with it. Deep trouble. The grave was opening up. The death was just looming over him. And he's in fear of his life in that sense. But the psalm just opened up as David spoke. 
he began to remember the past. God had delivered him. So two things he did. He started to pray. And he knew how the Lord had delivered him. He started asking with confidence. He just flips into the second thing, and that's praise. Started praising God. Somebody could come to him and say, Why are you in the midst of this problem? Why are you speaking to God about this? Well, because I believe that God answers prayer. I believe God is merciful, that God is gracious, that God is kind, God is compassionate. And I believe that about Him, so I spoke to Him. I believe. Therefore, I spoke. David acknowledges that. All the way to the last extremity. He was, he was so overpowered, he was almost ready to give way. I can't handle anymore. And then he regains the confidence. Why? Because he looked into the Word of God. He remembered how God did that. He prayed to God. He expressed confidence. In him. He spoke to God. He spoke of his confidence. Because the result of his belief is the way that he was able to respond in the manner that he did. He put confidence in God. Well, you know what? This is true of all believers. Sooner or later, one time or another, afflictions can come. But when you trust in God, it's like the fear just starts subsiding. You start counting upon who He is. You start thinking about what He has done in the past. He has never let you go, has He? If you're His. And He won't. It also applies deeply to Paul here. I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Speaking of Himself and other ministers of the Word of God who are with Him, they're firm and grounded into the faith, the doctrines of the Gospel. It takes time for that to happen. These ministers of the Word were grounded fully into God's Word. They didn't fear men when they spoke God's Word because God's Word can make people very angry. They're very faithful in the sight of Christ. Christ is their main subject. That's why they don't fear. They believe in Him. Nothing can stop their mouths. Nothing. If they still can speak, a great support and persecution. No hesitation. Paul didn't have hesitation. No ministers of the gospel had hesitation. No lack of trust. No unwavering kind of confidence or, or wavering confidence it was it was uh, unwavering totally confident in God I believe I can't be silent it takes to the point I believe God I'm going to continue to speak this word this truth no matter what happens that goes around us in this world I'm going to continue to speak truth you know, suffering isn't the issue with Paul here. He's not complaining about his suffering. He has spoken about what has happened to him. Afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. He's not complaining about that. It's not the issue. 
His reputation wasn't the issue. But he had this kind of attitude. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Turn to 1 Corinthians 9.16. And this was to the same people, the Corinthians, just in the first epistle. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Because that's what God has given him to do. Woe is me to preach it. Of course, that starts with the, the ministers. Paul had the same belief that David had, didn't he? That's what he's saying that writer had. He has a commitment to the Word of God. And he's going to give it. He has this treasure that's in this pot of clay. And he's going to give it. No matter if he's broken. Now, what we're going to do is show the bottom line for the preacher. It's found in a pastoral letter in Titus 1, verse 9. Yeah, first, second Timothy. Titus. Those are pastoral letters. It says in verse 1 9, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that we will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine, that's healthy doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And actually, if you go back in the context, see, this is talking about elders. Qualified elders, and they, first of all, are committed to God's truth, knowing that every word here is God's word. It's inspired. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It's complete, isn't it? It's very authoritative. So they, they would use that, and uh, so... Paul would be a faithful minister of the word, right? Anybody who preached the word would be faithful. They would not corrupt God's word in, in any sense. He has convictions in that. He says, if nobody listens to me, if nobody believes me, if nobody's even saved, transformed, born again, if they persecute me, if they stone me, if they beat me with rods, if they even come to the point of killing me, I will still preach this because this is what I believe. You can't back down. Many in the body of Christ today now are backing down on what I, I can't believe. I can't believe they're doing it. They're backing down on the issue, of course, is in the world is the same-sex marriage and many people are now saying it's okay it's all right if that's what you want to do churches these are mainline churches that are now saying this unbelievable how quick they're caving in because they're going to go against the rest of the world we believe we speak it we believe because it's here it says in Scripture, verse upon verse, that that is evil, that is wrong. Whether it be that, whether it be abortion, 
there be a lot of other things that go against God's word, we still are to speak truth. Never back down from truth. It's not popular. It's not popular today to do something, to, to, to be for something that is right and true and something that God has given has to be used in, in the proper way. And uh, we preach the gospel because we are constrained to speak out, to speak on it. It's not to an advantage that we do that. It's not to our advantage. Was it a, to, to Paul's advantage? Almost died many times. He was worn out by the time it was time to go. He was ready to go. He's a faithful preacher. So we're speaking on being faithful. When I say that, of course, this applies to all of us. We are all to be faithful to the Word. We are to speak it. But let's look at what a faithful preacher is as far as going inside the, the body of Christ. We also speak. We believe, we speak. And you'll see terms in the Scripture, preacher, pastor, elder, bishop. What are they? What are they? Not defined by what people think it is or by what's defined by certain denominations. But what does God say about these, these terms, pastor, elder, bishop? We know they should be faithful to speak the word. Are they speaking the word today? I would hope so. From what I'm understanding, it doesn't seem to be in, in, in a big number, does it? Titus 1 through 7, we, we just have been, last been there. Uh, let's start at verse 7 chapter 1 verse 7 and he's going to use a term here for the overseer and what's an overseer it's a bishop or episcopos or that's how episcopalians got their name or you can take it apart Greek is epi scopus to scope scopus epi over c scope telescope we're dealing with vision. They're seeing, right? To oversee. To oversee the matters in the church. To oversee souls and such. And he says this. For the overseer or the bishop. That's what it would be in the English. Must be above reproach as God's steward. Not self-willed. Not quick-tempered not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, and here's the verse that we read, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And we know, like in Timothy, and we'll read that in a moment, um, they're not to be young in the faith. They're not beginners. They are to be able to uh, show the maturity that has happened in their lives. That's an overseer. Now, now catch that word, overseer or bishop. Now we, we hear the word bishop quite frequently today. But how does it tie in with these others? That, that's a bishop then, overseer. 1 Timothy 5.17. This is another pastoral letter. Now, 
He's giving uh, again here, and of course he has qualifications for um, what we were just looking at. But here he speaks of the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And so there he's talking about the elders and their authority is not in themselves at all. I have no authority over anybody in this church and nobody has authority over anybody else. You know that, right? But the authority is the Word of God and the elders present that truth and so it's not somebody over somebody at all. That was misunderstood in the early church and you get into all sorts of complications there. But here, these are elders and uh, elders are... um, would be the, and the Greek there is presbyteros. Uh, Presbyterians get that name, and so they're uh, elder ruled. And of course, we just looked at the, the, another um, denomination that said overseer, and um, of course, in, in that sense, the Episcopalians, and they'd have bishops. They were not really the same thing as what we would see here in Scripture, though. I I would contest as we look at further Scripture. I think we can see that. So you have elders. You have overseers. Go to Ephesians 4.11. God has gifted certain people to do certain things so that the church would be equipped so that they too could carry that truth of God. In Ephesians 4, verse 11... And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastor teachers. Pastor teachers is kind of a hyphen there, really, because pastors have to teach. You can't be a pastor and not be able to teach. Now, somebody can be a teacher and not necessarily a pastor. But there, the word there would be dealing with um, pastor. Uh, or a shepherd, a poyman. Um, we've seen overseer, we've seen elder, and we've seen pastor. You can say, well, how do these, these are just different offices. You have different positions, and then you have cardinals, and you have popes, and that kind of thing too, right? No. And the bishops are really the same as the pastor, as the elder. They're the same people. You can say, well, I don't know how you get that. Well, we'll keep looking at Scripture and, and we'll see the, the proof of that. Acts 20. Acts 20, verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus, this is Paul, he's going to visit them, and call to him the elders of the church. And it's good there to note that This is a plural of of one church that's in Ephesus. So he calls them to come, and he wants to talk to them because if he goes into Ephesus, he knows that it's going to take too long. Everybody will will hold him back. He's got got an appointment to make. He's got to go. And so he has them meet him there. Now here's where I think it can get very interesting. Move to verse 27. For I I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. That's what elders do. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you, what? 
overseers or bishops or episcopos. And what do they do? Shepherd the church of God. Here he has the elders, and then he says, you, as he's speaking to the elders, and what does he call them? Overseers. And what do they do? They pastor the church of God. Do you see how these words now have come into conjunction with one word? We think we use the word pastor so much today, but he's, he's an overseer. He's an elder. He's a shepherd. He's a presbyteros, or he's a poiman, or he's a episcopos. And it's all the same thing. That's the only office, if you want to use the word office, ruling position there is in the church. And, of course, each church would have its own rule. Of course, the rule is the Word of God, and they should not be differing from that. And so, I think we get an idea here as we go into Acts 14.23, early in the church, as Paul would set up churches, he would go back to there and see how they were doing, build them up, edify them. He was a very merciful gracious man and it says when they had appointed elders for them in every church having prayed with fasting they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed so there we go we have the elders we've seen them together in Acts 20 when you have all three of those words together and it it turns into action the elders are overseers who shepherd or feed, take care of the flock. And does that make sense? Does that make sense? And what happened to the church is they started getting hierarchies. They would be over the people. There were people called the Nicolaitans in the book of Revelation. And it is supposed that it's possible that that would mean people that would be ruling over, they had victory over the people in the church. The Nicolaitans. Watch out for them. It's possible it meant that. At any rate, that is what happened in history. That's why you had so many divisions where you have uh, leaders over people and they answer to them. Rather than answering to the Lord himself in scripture, which they should be teaching, they took these offices and these ruling breakdowns finally you get to the the priest and that's a misnomer because the priests were actually fulfilled through the person of Christ who is our great high priest we don't need a priest to take us before God anymore we are priests Peter says that we are a royal priesthood we are kings and priests we have access right to God at any moment but the way that that system was set up people would have to get their sins forgiven and it was through the priest. They couldn't go straight to God. They have to go to the priest who would say, I absolve you of your sin. Do you see how the teaching of men comes against the very word of God if it's not based upon truth? Now, I brought that in to show how a faithful preacher is and there's other people. Now, we have had we believe in 
and multiple eldership here in this church. The only thing is, is that it hadn't ever, it, we would have people that were qualified, but either they didn't think that they were or wanted to and didn't accept it, or we had other, and then turning about later, it was probably good that they didn't accept it. There have been other people that were very qualified, and we have sent, I, I say we, God did, but God used this little church to send other people on to seminaries, to other churches, and uh, their, their, their elders or pastors, bishops, I guess you could say. Really, they're, they're pastors. And so we just never could have. We have, um, we have that situation now that we can do that. And so I present the, the biblical truth because if we have elders, then we must use the uh, with elders because otherwise we're disobedient. I felt disobedient all along, but there wasn't anybody that could do it. I've always believed in a multiple eldership. But I don't think I've ever... The people, sometimes you can have a one pastor and he controls everything. And I don't think you guys would, would say that I'm controlling everything. You might be thinking that. You know. But that's not the idea. It's, it's not, as, as Peter says, you know, overbearing and overruling on people. Um, we've let God uh, be the head of the church at the same time. Um, I have to use the authority of the Word of God. So be thinking on that. Go through those passages as you have them on your sheet there if you, you don't know about it. I've gone through this many times. And... Uh, thought it was a good place to put it out because we uh, are going to be pretty uh, quick in the future here having some multiple elders because of scripture. What do you guys think? Does that sound biblical? Did it sound, what we went through? Check it through if you need to. You know, they're biblical advisors and counselors. And that's what we have used here in that in that sense. We've, we've gone and, and used wisdom through through that and trying to be biblical as we, we could in that sense. So, And that's how God has, has, I think, not looked down upon us and punished us because we haven't. It just, you, just got, you just can't use somebody that, that is not called to be a pastor, and that doesn't work. Let's go on to the 14th verse, and uh, that that is the main point where we are talking about here today is, is the faithfulness that Paul had. He believed. He spoke, didn't he? And that can be all the way, if you have the gospel, not even being afflicted. You have the word of truth. Speak it. Right? Now, he says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us all also with Jesus and will present us with you. You know what? That's ultimate victory. Here's the whole thing we stand on. We can do what we do, Paul says, because of the confidence in the resurrection. He rose from the dead. It's promised to us. He's fully confident. He is entirely assured. He says knowing. He sustained in all of his trials and afflictions that he goes through as we see him express that. His doctrines were true. And he knew where he got his doctrine. It came from heaven. The promises of God, he counted on it. And he knew they'd be fulfilled. 
Real quick, let's turn through some scripture. Acts 2.24. Early. Early. 50 days after the resurrection. Pentecost. Chapter 2.24. But God raised him up after he was nailed to the cross. And it's all about the predetermined plan for knowledge of God. God raised him up. That's Christ. Again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power, the resurrection. And then he quotes out of the Old Testament, Peter does, and he uses David. David knew that there would be a, a day when the Holy One would be one who would resurrect. Turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 11. We can stand on anything, folks. You don't have to be fearful of anything. Why? Because of the resurrection. Chapter 8, verse 11, one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. It's a glowing diamond, shining brightly in the noonday sun, this Romans 8 is. And in verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. You can bank on it. You know, without a doubt. You don't know what's going to happen in the next hour or two hours. But you know this better than anything. It's never happened to you. But you know that if you die, there will be a resurrection of you. Isn't that great? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. That's why Paul was confident. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His dynamite, through His power. 1 Thessalonians. Well, go to 1 Corinthians 15, since you're in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. We'll all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written... That is written, that's in the Bible, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It takes all the power out of it, doesn't it? The sting out. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That's why Paul could be confident as he was. He has a reward. The reward is with Christ. We look at 1 Corinthians 4, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. And, you know, that's a corporate event there. All of God's people presented there will be forever with Christ. We are indestructible in Jesus Christ. We will not be destroyed. The saving work of Christ has been accomplished. 
Paul is thinking of the parousia here, Christ coming back ultimately. And look what would be missed out if Paul didn't speak. If he fails to speak out, what's going to happen to the people in Corinth? Well, knowing God, he'll bring somebody else. <laughs> but his plan was to bring the Apostle Paul into Corinth, start up a church there. To, to present means to cause to stand. It means to place beside, in his presence, standing right by him, right there fully. God will praise, or will raise, sorry. He will raise and place, my R and P's there, before him, his church. Stand where? Right with him the people who responded to the gospel. It's for the benefit, look in Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians now, back to chapter 4, for all things are for your sakes. Paul, why are you doing this? You're just wasting your life. You're getting very few people. There are some. But Paul, it's not worth it to, to, to almost die like you did and to, to be almost blind. Paul, why are you doing this? You're thrown in jail so often, Paul. Why are you doing it? Verse 15, for all things are for your sakes. It's for you. I die daily for you Corinthians. Corinthians are saying, hey, we're not sure you're really an apostle. That's oh, sad. He gave them all the truth that they needed. And now they were starting to turn on him because it was now politically correct <laughs> to do and start believing people had come in that were teaching false things. And so now we get to the very last thing, which is the most important thing. All things are for your sake, so the grace which is spreading to more and more people, that's why Paul does it. The grace is spreading. It goes from one person to another to another. You have a church. And what that does is cause the giving of thanks. We have thanksgiving come up, right? We should be giving thanks always to abound to the glory of God. What's chief end of man? Glorify God to enjoy Him forever. That is Christianity and everything summed up. Glorify God. That's the ultimate purpose. That is the supreme purpose of why we live. Why we live now and why we will live right on in through eternity. It's all about the purpose of God, His glory. You know, as people give thanks, God's reputation, His honor is enhanced. It's extended. He doesn't need that. That's what, he does it for our sake. When we give glory to Him, it's for our sake. He doesn't need anything, does He? He's not lacking in anything. How is God glorified in my suffering? By giving abundant grace to get us through it and to maintain joy and strength through it. Paul said that. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. My grace is sufficient. Paul had something he was going through that was pretty terrible. All things are for our good. Trials serve to bring me nearer to God. Everlasting inheritance is coming. He is making us perfect. We can't be perfect until we have resurrected bodies, though. That's what he's doing. He's making us holy. 
as he is holy. God's people may be increased in number and then the grace is increased. There's devotedness. There's the aspect of being useful to God, desiring to do his way, and it redounds to the glory of God. It's all about him. God has a gracious invitation to more and more people. And the more people that believe him now have thanksgiving because all Christians give him thanks. And it's offered by the growing numbers in the congregations. And it enhances God's reputation in the surrounding community as people see that. And 1 Peter 5.10 is what we're going to close with. We're going to close this very quick. 1 Peter 5.10 After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you He called you to what? His eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect that's what I was talking about confirm strengthen and establish you that's what he's doing right now there will be a day of perfection completion He says this, to him be dominion forever and ever. <coughs> Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. How can we not help but speak? We believe, and therefore we speak. We speak to you. We speak how gracious, how compassionate, how good. How holy you are. How merciful. How loving you are to all of us who are jars of clay. Don't deserve anything from you. And you have a purpose for us as we look to you. What an amazing thing. And because of that, we be, as we believe that, we believe the promises we speak. And there's no reason, no reason whatsoever to be fearful in this life or in death. In your son's name, amen.